This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The book of Genesis opens with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These words teach us two basic truths about God. God exists and God acts. We believe in a God who acts. Our every prayer affirms our faith that God acts in our lives and in our world. When we say God acts in the world, we mean God somehow influences the world and makes things happen or causes things. As Jesus says, your father who is in heaven makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Since God causes things to happen, if we were to speak about God's action, we need a language of causality, a language about how things happen. Our general understanding of causality will affect the ways we're able to talk about God's causality or God's action. If we have a rich language of causality, we can have a nuanced conversation about divine action. But if our language of causality gets cramped and constricted, we become, we might say, theologically tongue-tied when we try to talk about divine action. I believe that's just what happened with the advent of modern science. The notion of causality got locked in, and so did the discussion of divine action. So this evening, I'll review some of the history that I just mentioned. To get a running start on it, I'll begin with St. Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century, long before modern science got rolling with Galileo and Newton in the 17th century. To talk about causality, Aquinas borrowed from the philosophy of Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century BC. So with that, we'll have a nice long running start. Aquinas and Aristotle taught that any change in the natural world requires four distinct kinds of causes. They called these the material cause, the formal cause, the efficient cause, and the final cause. An example, as an example of these causes, we might think of an artist who transforms a block of clay into a statue. The clay is the material cause. It's the stuff out of which the statue is made. Without some stuff to work on, you can't make a statue. But what kind of statue do you want to make? A statue of a dog or a cat, a pigeon or a president, a snail or a saint? The kind of statue you end up with depends on the shape you give to the clay. So that shape is also a cause of the statue. It's called the formal cause. It's that by which the clay is no longer just a block of clay, but a statue. And depending on the form that's given to it, it'll be a statue of a dog or a cat or an elephant. As a statue depends on its material cause, the clay, it also depends on its formal cause or shape. Of course, the clay will never become a statue unless someone gives it that shape. The someone is the artist, the agent who makes the statue. The agent is called the efficient cause. So the statue depends not only on its material and formal causes, but also on its efficient cause. But why does the artist go to all the bother of making a statue? The artist must have some purpose or goal in mind. Perhaps it's to become famous, or maybe to gift humanity with something good and noble and beautiful that will edify future generations. Or maybe it's just to make a few bucks. In any case, the artist must have some goal or purpose. This is called the final cause, the purpose for which the statue is made. 
it's defined as that for the sake of which something is done. In some ways, the statue depends most fundamentally on this final cause, since without it, the artist, the efficient cause, would never have picked up the clay, the material cause, and given it a distinctive shape, the formal cause. The notions of matter and form are found in two distinct kinds of change, accidental change and substantial change. In accidental change, like the making of a statue, a certain subject, substance like clay, endures through the change and undergoes some accidental or incidental modification, like acquiring a new shape or accidental form, as when a block of clay might be shaped into a sphere. In substantial change, the substance itself changes and becomes a different substance. When a dog dies, for instance, it ceases to be a dog and becomes a different substance. Since the substance itself, the dog, is changing, it can't be a substance that endures through the change, but must be some more fundamental principle. Aristotle calls this principle primary matter. It's not itself a substance, but the mere possibility of being a substance. What actualizes it, what actualizes it is not some accidental form, such as a shape or structure, but a substantial form understood as the principle or cause by which a thing is what it is. When a dog dies, for instance, primary matter ceases to have the substantial form of dog and comes to have some new substantial form, perhaps the substantial form of a dog carcass, or the substantial forms of all of the more basic substances that make up the car carcass, such as carbon and calcium and so on. We tend to think of causality or action mostly in terms of efficient cause, the agent of change. Aristotle and Aquinas, however, ascribe the notion of action not only to the efficient cause, but also to the formal and final causes. In Aquinas's understanding, to act means to make something to be in act. This can happen in a number of ways. If an artist shapes a block of clay into a ball, for instance, we can say that the artist, the efficient cause, makes the clay to be round. But we can also say that the form of roundness makes the clay to be round. For all of the artist's squishings and squashings, the clay remains only potentially round until it possesses the form of roundness actually. We can also say that the final cause or end acts on the agent or moves it to act. For instance, if the artist works in order to make money, we can say that money, as the final cause, the good to be attained, induces the artist to act. We've seen that the statue is dependent on all four causes. Aquinas sees such dependency as the defining feature of all causality. He says, those things upon which others depend for their being or becoming are called causes. Causality is an analogous notion with various shades of meaning that can be employed in a number of ways. The artist is the cause of the statue, but so are the clay, the material cause out of which it is made, and the shape, the formal cause into which it is molded, and the purpose or goal, the final cause for which it's produced. This rich account of causality was largely lost with the advent of modern science. To see why, we can turn to Galileo. In addition to his famous discoveries in astronomy, Galileo also devised a systematic method for investigating the natural world through measurement or mathematics. He once compared the universe to a book written in mathematical language. 
we can understand the book only if, only if we know the language. As Galileo puts it, the universe is like a book written in the language of mathematics, and its characters are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures, without which it is humanly impossible to understand a single word of it. Without these, one wanders about in a dark labyrinth. Using Galileo's method, science made enormous progress, but had to limit its study to those aspects of reality that could be measured and represented mathematically. Physical realities could be represented in this way since they had properties like size and weight that could be measured and counted. Intangible realities, however, such as faith and hope, as well as spiritual realities such as God and angels were not measurable and so lay beyond the scope of empirical science. Of Aristotle's four causes, some could be represented in Galileo's method, but others couldn't. The material cause might be represented in that way if we reduce it to measurable properties, such as size and weight. If we reduce the material cause to measurable properties, such as size and weight, but broader aspects of the material cause, such as primary matter, as the sheer potentiality of one thing to become something else could not be so represented. The efficient cause could fit within Galileo's method if it were reduced to something quantifiable, such as force. The action of the artist in making the statue, for instance, might be reduced to the number of pounds of pressure per square inch that uh, is put on the clay. But of course, the creativity of the artist would elude such an analysis. Formal causality, if it's reduced simply to shape or structure, could be measured, and so would fit within Galileo's method. But when formal causality is defined more broadly as that by which a thing is what it is, it no longer fits quite so well. That by which clay is a statue of Lincoln is simply its shape. But that by which a dog is a dog is not simply its shape, but something much more fundamental. When a dog dies, for instance, it may retain its shape for some time, but it's no longer a dog, but a mere carcass. At that point, its substantial form, the principle by which a dog is a dog, is no longer present. The substantial form, the fundamental principle of dogness, is not measurable. Final causality is also not quantifiable, and so doesn't fit within Galileo's method. There is no number for final cause understood as that for the sake of which something is done. For instance, if I uh, asked you why you're doing something, you can't just answer six or 12 or 38. No number can describe the final cause or explain the purpose of your action. Modern science quite reasonably ceased to employ Aristotle's four causes to the extent that they were not measurable and so didn't fit within his method. The very success of science, however, eventually gave rise to the conviction that Aristotle's causes were not just unnecessary, but unreal. They were simply non-existent. This conviction, however, was not grounded in science, but in an ideology that's become known as scientism. It assumes that empirical science has a monopoly on the study of reality. It takes the method of science, which simply studies the world quantitatively, and transforms it into a metaphysics, declaring that only the quantifiable is real. The ideology of scientism has had sweeping consequences for the notion of causality. 
causality could no longer encompass Aristotle's four causes, it was reduced simply to the force that moves the atoms. Of Aristotle's causes, only efficient causality remained, since it alone could be measured and expressed mathematically. As the philosopher Mario Bunge explains, the Aristotelian teaching of causes lasted in the official Western culture until the Renaissance. When modern science was born, formal and final causes were left aside as standing beyond the reach of experiment. And material causes were taken for granted in connection with all natural happenings, though with a definitely non-Aristotelian meaning, since the modern worldview, since in the modern worldview, matter is essentially the subject of change, not that out of which something comes to be and which persists. Hence, of the four Aristotelian causes, only the efficient cause was regarded as worthy of scientific research. This reduction of causality to the univocal notion of the force that moves the atoms had serious consequences in theology for the discussion of divine action. We might say that as causality itself got locked into the univocal notion of the force that moves the atoms, our ability to speak of God's causality or God's action was also imprisoned. If causality itself is reduced to physical force and God is called a cause, then God must also exert some physical force if he's to act in the world. In this way, God's causality is thought to be the same as that of any other agent. God becomes just one more cause among others. When two causes of the same type act in any given situation, however, they always interfere with each other in some way. If two people carry a table, for instance, the work is divided between them. They're involved in a zero-sum game. The more weight one of them lifts, the less there is for the other. If one hefts the whole load, the other will be left with nothing to do. Similarly, if we think of God as a cause like any other in the world, his causality will seem to be in competition with creatures. Again, we have a zero-sum game. If God acts in the world in the same way as creatures, his action would seem to interfere with theirs. And since God is omnipotent, his action will not only interfere with, but nullify the action of creatures, as well as the scientific laws that describe them. So Gordon Kaufman wonders how God can intervene in the world without, as he says, violently ripping into the fabric of history or arbitrarily upsetting the momentum of its powers. Faced with these consequences, many thinkers concluded that there was simply no room for God to act in the world. As Keith Ward explains, the scientific worldview seems to leave no room for God to act, since everything that happens is determined by scientific laws. As Albert Einstein observes, the more a man is imbued with the ordered regularity of all events, the firmer becomes his conviction that there is no room left by the side of this ordered regularity for causes of a different nature. For him, neither the rule of human nor the rule of divine will exists as an independent cause of natural events. To avoid such divine interference, some theologians began to think that God's power must be limited in some way. We find one example of this in what's called deism, a philosophy that limits God's action to the moment of creation. God did indeed make the world, but then ceased to act in it, and is no longer needed to explain its continued existence. Other theologians allow that God continues to act in the world in some way, but limit the scope of his activity. Some liberal theologians, for instance, 
deny that God can act outside the laws of nature. So Friedrich Schleiermacher argued that, quote, as regards the miraculous, the general interests of science, more particularly of natural science, and the interest of religion seem to meet at the same point. That is, that we should abandon the idea of the absolutely supernatural. Rudolf Bultmann considered it inappropriate to view divine action as a cause which intervenes between the natural or historical or psychological course of events. Events in nature, he says, are so linked by cause and effect as to leave no room for God's working. To avoid divine interference, some theologians have placed limitations on God's knowledge and power. So Arthur Peacock argues that God's omniscience and omnipotence must be regarded in some way as self-limited. John Polkinghorne thinks that the presence of chance events in the world implies a limitation on divine power. He says, God chose a world in which chance had a role to play, thereby accepting limitation of his power to control. Brian Hemelwaith believes that to make room for human, for human freedom, God must both limit both his power and his knowledge. It might seem that we have to limit God's action if we believe that it would otherwise interfere with the causality of creatures and the nexus of scientific laws. And we will think that God's action must involve such a disturbance as long as we understand it as a mythical cause. Yet, we will have no other way to understand divine action if we view causality itself as a univocal notion. Then the question arises, why should we continue to view causality so narrowly? Why should we continue to be trapped in the narrow idea of causality that grew out of modern science? Why indeed, when contemporary science now suggests a much broader notion of causality, which in turn opens new ways for speaking of divine action. If Newtonian science reduced the idea of causality to efficient cause conceived as quantifiable force, the force that moves the atoms, contemporary science has enormously broadened that notion. Indeed, a univocal understanding of causality no longer seems adequate to the scientific enterprise itself. For instance, quantum mechanics, at least in the Copenhagen interpretation, envisions a world of spontaneity and points to a fundamental indeterminism at the heart of material reality. This notion of indeterminacy brings to mind Aristotle's material cause, not the actual measurable stuff of Newtonian science, but a principle of sheer possibility. The theory of emergence claims that at many levels in the natural world, new features arise that cannot be explained simply by reference to their parts. To study them, one must begin with the whole, from the top down, rather than the part from the bottom up. Jonathan Powers argues, for instance, that there are several features of the present day theory of elementary particles, which suggests that at certain levels of complexity, matter exhibits emergent properties and emergent laws, which can neither be defined nor explained in terms of the properties and laws at lower levels of complexity. Emergence is even more evident in biology. According to John Polkinghorne, subatomic particles are not only not more real than a bacterial cell, they also have no greater privilege share in determining the nature of reality. This means that the bottom-up method of reductionism 
is no longer adequate to account for the phenomena that science observes in the world. As Roger Sperry, Roger Sperry explains, the molecules of all higher living beings are not moved around in our biosphere so much by molecular laws and forces as they are by the living vital powers of the particular species in which they're embedded. Such molecules are flown through the air, galloped across the plains, propelled through the water and so on, not by molecular forces nor by quantum mechanics, but by the specific holistic vital properties possessed by the organisms in question. The presence of holistic behavior invites a reconsideration of Aristotle's idea of formal causality, since how a thing behaves or acts depends on the kind of thing it is. If it's a duck, it'll quack. If it's a dog, it'll bark. Since a thing's action or behavior depends on what kind of thing it is, to explain its behavior, we have to explain why it's that kind of thing. To explain that, we have to employ formal causality. Specifically, we need the causality of substantial form, which is defined as that by which a thing is what it is. Substantial form can account for what kind of thing it is, and so also for what sorts of things it does. Final causality or teleology was also banished by Newtonian science, but has now reappeared in contemporary biology. As evolutionary biologist Francisco Ayala explains, teleological explanations are appropriate in biology. Teleological explanations imply that the end result is the explanatory reason for the existence of the object or process which serves or leads to it. A teleological account of the gills of fish implies that gills came to existence precisely because they serve for respiration. Teleological explanations in biology are not only acceptable, but indeed indispensable. It seems contemporary science is reaching out to new modes of causality that are strikingly like the kinds of causes found in Aristotle and Aquinas. There are two options on how to use the discoveries of contemporary science in the discussion of divine action. One is to employ the discoveries themselves. The other is to employ not so much the discoveries as the expanded notion of causality that they imply. A number of theologians choose the first option and use the discoveries of contemporary science themselves in their theology. For instance, Robert Russell, the founder of the Center for Theology and the Natural Science at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, employs the indeterminism of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics to show how God might act in the world, yet not interfere with natural causes. He names this with the acronym NIOTA, standing for Non-Interventionist Objective Divine Action. He explains that we can view God as acting in particular quantum events to produce indirectly a specific event at the macroscopic level, one which we call an event of special providence. Quantum mechanics allows us to think of special divine action without God overriding or intervening in the structure of nature. Similarly, John Polkinghorne finds a place for divine action in the indeterminacy of chaos theory. Polkinghorne's arguments depend on a particular interpretation of chaos theory, 
just as Russell's depend on a particular interpretation of quantum mechanics. Those who interpret these theories differently find no warrant for the natural indeterminacy that the two theologians invoke as the place of divine action. All theologians who follow the first option and employ the discoveries of science themselves in their theology face similar problems. First, their theology will be tied to a specific interpretation of a particular theory of science, and so will be viable only as long as that theory and that interpretation are considered valid. As science changes and one theory replaces another, their theology will become obsolete. A second problem arises for theologians who locate God's action in a scientific realm of indeterminacy, that is, in a kind of built-in gap in the causality of nature where they find room for God to act. The problem is that science has a way of filling in such gaps as it advances. The God who acts in them is sometimes called the God of the gaps, God whose realm of activity is constantly shrinking before the advance of science. A third problem for theologians who choose the first option is that their theology implicitly assumes that God's causality is univocal with the causality of creatures. Since only univocal causes can interfere with each other, like the people carrying the table, the whole project of finding a place in the natural world for God to act without interfering with creatures seems to be built on the assumption that God is the sort of cause, that is, a univocal cause, who could interfere with the causality of creatures. To avoid such problems, it may be better to follow the second option, and rather than using the discoveries of science themselves in our theology, to use instead the broader categories of causality that they imply. Here, we can retrieve the broader understanding of causality of Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. In Aquinas' theology, God exercises causality in many ways. To explore these, we can begin with final causality. God, as the ultimate good, is the final cause of all things. We've already seen how the goodness of a statue might act as a final cause and move an artist to begin the work of sculpting. As the goodness of the statue causes the artist to act, so God's goodness moves all creatures to act. In whatever they do, all creatures are seeking the infinite goodness of God as the final cause of their actions. As Aquinas explains, since every action of the creature is for the sake of some real or apparent good, and each thing is good only insofar as it participates in a likeness to the supreme good, who is God, it follows that God himself is the cause of every operation as its end. As final cause, God is involved in the action of each creature. God doesn't interfere with that action, but is rather its source, since the creature would not act at all unless, in some way, it were moved by some good to be attained through its action. All of creation reflects God's goodness. As Genesis tells us, God looked on all that he had made and saw that it was very good. When we seek the good things of this world, we're really looking for God, whose goodness is reflected in them. Ultimately, however, it's only in the infinite goodness of God that we find what we're truly seeking. As St. Augustine says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, 
and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In creating and sustaining the universe, God also acts as the exemplar, formal cause of all things. As the idea of a statute or any work of art is first in the mind of the artist, so every creature is in the mind of God, known and loved by God from all eternity. As the psalmist says, it was you who created my being, knit me together in my mother's womb. I thank you for the wonder of my being, for the wonders of all your creation. As exemplar formal cause, God is present to each thing, to each creature, as the ultimate cause of its substantial form, that principle by which the creature is what it is. And God is also the first efficient cause of all things. As such, God is most intimately present to each creature at every moment as the cause of its existence and the ultimate source of its action. Aquinas explains the, God's efficient causality in relation to the causality of creatures with two analogies. The first is the relationship between a primary cause and a secondary cause. The second is the relation between a principal cause and an instrumental cause. We'll take a look at both of them. A primary cause acts through a secondary cause to produce an effect that lies within the capacity of the secondary cause, but which the secondary cause could not produce without the influence of the primary cause. For example, we might think of the relationship between the conductor of an orchestra and its musicians. Together, they produce the music of the symphony. Each musician is a secondary cause who produces music according to his or her own talent and ability. But the musicians can't produce the coordinated sounds of the symphony apart from the direction of the conductor as the primary cause. Analogously, God acts as primary cause in every creature when, as a secondary cause, it produces some action proportionate to its nature. So dogs can bark and ducks can quack and humans can think each in accordance with its nature, but they cannot do any of these things apart from God's influence. Aquinas' Aquinas's second analogy is the relation between a principal cause and an instrumental cause. A principal cause acts through an instrumental cause to produce an effect that belongs entirely to both, but exceeds the capacity of the instrumental cause acting by itself. When I use a pen, for instance, to write a letter, the result belongs entirely to me and entirely to the pen. There's not a word that I did not write, nor a mark that the pen did not make. Yet the act of writing a letter is beyond what a pen could do on its own. Analogously, God acts as a principal cause in every creature when, as an instrumental cause, it produces an action that in some way exceeds the capacity of its nature. Every effect that the creature produces, however, does in some way exceed its capacity, since every effect in some way involves an instantiation of being, and God alone is the proper cause of being, since God alone is pure being itself, or in Latin, ipsum esse subsistence. So when I use a pen to write a letter, there are several levels of causality at work. I'm the principal cause of the letter in relationship to the pen as instrumental cause. At the same time, 
I am myself an instrumental cause of the existence of the letter in relation to God as the principal cause of existence. I'm also a secondary cause since although letter writing is quite within my human capacities, I could not exercise those capacities apart from the influence of God as primary cause. God's causality acting in me as I write the letter doesn't diminish, distort, or interfere with my own causality, but is rather the source of my own proper causality. As I write the letter, the causality of the pen shows up in the color and width of the marks on the page. My causality shows up not only in my heartfelt sentiments that I'm expressing, but also in my messy penmanship. And God's causality acts through both me and the pen, resulting in the actually existing letter. God's action as primary and principal cause doesn't interfere with or diminish the causality of creatures. How to characterize the causality of creatures? Well, the causality of creatures can be categorized fundamentally as necessary causes and contingent causes. A necessary cause cannot not produce its effect, while a contingent cause may or may not produce its effect. A tulip bulb, for instance, is a contingent cause since it tends to produce a tulip, but may or may not succeed in doing this depending on many factors, such as adequate sunlight, moisture, and so on. Among contingent causes, we can further categorize some as free, like human beings with human free will, and others as chance, if their results are completely fortuitous. God transcends the entire order of creaturely causality and can't be assigned univocally to any of the creaturely categories of necessary, contingent, free, or chance. Yet, God acts in and through all creaturely causes, in each according to its nature, to produce effects that may be necessary, contingent, free, or by chance. God is not in competition with creatures, nor does he distort their proper causality, but is rather its source. Aquinas explains this in a rather long but important quotation. He says, there's a difference to be noted on the part of the divine will. For the divine will must be understood as existing outside the order of beings, as a cause producing the whole of being and all of its differences. Now the possible and the necessary are differences of being and therefore necessity and contingency in things, and the distinction of each according to the nature of their proximate causes, originate from the divine will itself. For he disposes necessary causes for he effects that he wills to be necessary, and he ordains contingent causes able to fail for the effects that he wills to be contingent. And according to the condition of these causes, effects are called either necessary or conditional, contingent, although all depend on the divine will as on a first cause, which transcends the order of necessity and contingency. This, however, cannot be said of the human will, nor of any other cause, for every other cause already falls under the order of necessity or contingency. Hence, either the cause itself must be able to fail, or if not, its effect is not contingent, but necessary. The divine will, on the other hand, is unfailing, yet not all of its effects are necessary, but some are 
contingent. So God transcends the whole order of creaturely causality and acts through creatures to produce effects that are necessary, contingent, free, or by chance. The notion of primary and secondary causality also provides and preserves the proper domains of science and theology. Science is free to study secondary causality on their own, secondary causes on their own level without needing to make reference to God as the primary cause. At the same time, philosophy and theology may rise to another level and affirm God's universal influence in the natural world without jeopardizing the work of science. God's primary causality doesn't interfere with the secondary causality of creatures since it is the very source of their causality. God can also act in the world through miracles that utterly exceed the causality of creatures. We might think of the mighty signs that God performed in Exodus as he led people from slavery in Egypt, parting the Red Sea and feeding them with manna in the desert. We might also consider the many signs that Jesus worked in his healing the leper, calming the sea, and most especially in his own resurrection. As Aquinas explains, the word miracle is derived from admiration, which arises when an effect is manifest, whereas its cause is hidden. Now, a miracle is so-called as being full of wonder, as having a cause absolutely hidden from all, and this cause is God. Wherefore, those things which God does outside those causes, which we know, are called miracles. Even God's miraculous action, however, must not be understood as interfering with the natural order, since the deepest bent of the natural order is, after all, its ordering towards God as the primary efficient exemplar and final cause of all things. As Aquinas says, since God is the primary agent, all things that come after him are like instruments for him. But instruments are made for the purpose of subserving the action of the principal agent while being moved by him. This is why it is not contrary to the nature of an instrument for it to be moved by a principal agent but rather is most fitting for it. Therefore, it is not contrary to nature when created things are moved in any way by God. Indeed, they were so made that they might serve him. Aquinas explains that miracles are beyond, but not against nature. He says, since the order of nature is given to things by God, if he does anything outside this order, it is not against nature. Conclude, we might say that if the task of the theologian is to speak of God and God's action, then that task was greatly hampered when the notion of causality itself was locked into a narrow univocal understanding in the wake of contemporary science or modern science. But as contemporary science broadens our understanding of causality in ways so reminiscent of Aquinas, we're invited to retrieve his idea of causality as a key to unlock the discussion of God's action in the world, God's intimate presence in all creation, and God's providential care for all things. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for such a, a profound and uh, systematic uh, 
a presentation on theology, causality, and science. This is exactly the kind of topic that attracted me to the study of Aquinas in the first place when I started studying philosophy. Uh, so uh, for me, uh, it, it really illuminates uh, the nature of our world by uh, helping us to uh, understand in a systematic way how everything fits together, as it were. Yeah. And now we have uh, some time for a Q&A. You talk about the need for retrieving these categories of causality from Aristotle and Aquinas, but I don't really see why we need to go back to these old guys who lived when, you know, modern science didn't exist and, you know, science wasn't very good back then. Why, why should we go back to them to retrieve uh, categories of causality or ways of thinking about causality for the things we're discovering today with modern science? You, you seem to be arguing in your lecture that we're discovering all these exciting things about causality that we didn't know before in modern science. Why can't we then look to modern science itself to provide us with the clues for an adequate philosophy? Why do we need to resurrect some, you know, archaic philosophy that wasn't around? What makes, what makes you think it fits so well with the results of modern science? Aren't you, aren't you just taking the results of modern science and stuffing them into old outmoded categories of thought? Well, why should we go back and retrieve these categories? Why not try something new? Yeah, I suppose it's a danger for a Dominican to try to stuff everything back into Aquinas again. Um, but I do think, and what surprises me in reading about the modern philosophy of science and what scientists are up to, is that the things they're describing um, do seem in some ways to fit with uh, the things that Aristotle was describing, at least in the broad categories of how things happen, you know. And given that, uh, since there is a very nuanced, developed notion of causality in, in terms of those four causes already existing. So why reinvent the wheel? Uh, go back and find out how those things are relevant. So, and, and I think it would be a false direction if uh, science wasn't at all dovetailing with the philosophy of uh, Aristotle in, in the way it presents some of its uh, dilemmas and uh, uh, discoveries. Not the discoveries of science themselves, but the way they're discovered, uh, talked about causally, like the top-down causality and emergence is talked about. Well, that's an exciting thing in science. If uh, reductionism had been the watchword in science and bottom-up was the way to study the world from the movement of the atoms would explain the chemistry and the, the way that molecules work. And that in turn, going up from the bottom up explains biology and so on. But now with more holistic views in emergence, it looks like scientists themselves want to start with the top, with the whole, and don't think you can explain the whole in terms of the part. Well, that's an intriguing idea, given the long history of reductionism in science. But it's an idea that was there already in Aristotle, who'd also begin with the whole, with, with the substance to explain things. So uh, I'm hoping not uh, forcing things into the mold of uh, Aristotle and Aquinas, but rather letting, seeing how things have emerged in the discussions in contemporary science and how they dovetail with certain uh, uh, notions of Aristotle and Aquinas. And given that configuration of things, uh, why not go ahead and employ those uh, notions since they've already been pretty well uh, developed. We don't have to start from zero to, to talk about these things. Thank you. We've got a question from Jen, who really liked your concluding thoughts. 
she thought it summed things up really well. So she was trying to type and take notes about your conclusion. And she was just asking if you could repeat those concluding thoughts again, your last few sentences. It, it all came together, but she just wants to make sure she has your conclusion correct. Okay, no, I'm sure I'm happy to do that. And I think this is recorded, so you can always find it at the, at the uh, Thomistic Institute website too. But so maybe instead of rereading it, just uh, paraphrase or put it in a little bit different way. Uh, yeah, so theologians, what do we do? Well, we talk about God. So we talk about God's action. And we couldn't do that if we didn't have a language of action or a language of causality when that very notion of causality got narrowed down to inimical notion. So causes were just forces that moved atoms. And then you say, God is a cause. Well, it looks like God must be one more force out there moving atoms around, but that puts God in competition with other forces that are moving atoms around. And basically theologians talk about God and God doing things. So you need a notion of causality in order to do that. If the notion of causality itself gets reduced just to the force that moves the atoms, then it makes God look like one more force moving atoms and so in competition with other causes. Contemporary science broadens the understanding of causality in ways that are reminiscent of Aquinas and Aristotle. And that to me invites a retrieval of their idea of causality, which could then be a key that unlocks the discussion of God's action in the world, but also God's intimate presence in all creation and God's providential care for all things. Thank you. I have a question from Kelsey, who, who asks, if God has a plan for us, and uh, if we're not taking the hints, or we're veering off of his plan, wouldn't he try to interfere? Well, yes. I mean, God intervenes. If you, all of these words um, are kind of dangerous in that interfere is very dangerous. Uh, intervene even makes it sound like God is out there somewhere apart from the world, and then kind of comes into the world and intervenes in the world. But I think God is present in the world and in us uh, always, you know, closer to us than we are to ourselves. So given that situation, then God does act in us. He, I think, inspires the saints, inspires people to ways of acting. Um, he can act miraculously in the world, certainly in the events that, of Jesus' life and so on. Um, and the how to characterize those actions. We can call them interventions. Um, I don't think we should see them as so much uh, contrary to the, the way that nature works, but rather beyond what nature does. So uh, God can act in those ways. So, yeah, and I think God has, I mean, the whole story of the Bible is about how humans fell and the original sin in the book of Genesis. And God sends the prophets in the Old Testament. He intervenes again and again to, to lead his people, not just from slavery in Egypt, but to the, the truth of, uh, you know, eventually the truth of the preaching of Christ. And Christ coming into the world is also a divine uh, intervention. So, no, I don't think that there's any problem with God intervening in the world. There would be if we had a univocal notion of God and it made it look like God was bumping into other causes, bumping into things and messing it all up by such intervention. But it's only when we think of God as just one more cause among others um, and lose track of the transcendence of God that we end up with that kind of a mindset, I think. Thank you. I have a question from Ben who asks, 
Aristotle's causes exist within an understanding that the universe has and will always exist. Whereas revealed religion believes the universe is created and historical. Does this historical understanding of the universe have more in common with modern science's understanding of causality, Big Bang Theory, or other ideas of creation? Does it have uh, more in common with modern science's understanding of causality than Aristotelian ideas of causality? Can Aristotle's causes exist within a historical understanding of the universe? Well, that's, that's a very good question, you know. And I think when we read these ancient authors, even when Thomas Aquinas read Aristotle, and Aristotle was the pagan, Thomas Aquinas was the Christian, there was a certain work of uh, correction or interpretation that had to go on. Aristotle did think that the whole the cosmos was eternal. In fact, he argued for that. Aquinas knew by faith that there was a moment of creation. So how to put the two together? He looked at Aristotle's arguments and saw that they weren't conclusive arguments for the eternity of the world. And eventually he thought that human reason by itself couldn't decide, can't tell by looking at the world whether it had, always has been or whether it was created. To him, creation is divinely revealed, and it's only through that revelation that we know that the world had a beginning. Now, that said, contemporary science, especially Big Bang Theory, looks like a moment of creation, but does it really? I mean, we might say that there is a kind of uh, consonance or something between uh, Big Bang and creation. But depending on how you interpret Big Bang, uh, some scientists say there, there was a Big Bang that was the beginning of our universe, but then as things expand, 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 eventually they're going to start contracting again. We're going to have a big crunch and then another Big Bang and the big crunch and so on, which would fit with Aristotle's idea of a eternal or everlasting universe. It'd just be that it was dynamically expanding and contracting, whereas Aristotle thought it was just concentric circles moving around forever and ever and ever around each other. So, so there is a certain work of interpretation that has to go on when uh, um, one adopts uh, uh, ancient philosophers and tries to incorporate them. Um, but I think that's uh, it's possible to, to do that. In terms of the dynamism, I suppose... Uh, Aristotle, in some ways, has a very dynamic cosmos. Everything has its own substantial form, which is its own principle of action. So things are acting. As soon as they exist, they begin to act. Whereas in the science that comes with Descartes and Newton, things are like blobs that don't have any spontaneous action of their own. They move only when something else pushes them or shoves them, some outside force. So the world is like a big machine, which isn't very dynamic. Uh, in the contemporary view of things uh, with the Big Bang or with evolution, things have a spontaneous movement in some way or other. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that there's a stability and dynamism is a characteristic of the material universe. And in ancient philosophy, Parmenides was the prophet of uh, stability. Simply, the world is as it is and cannot change. Heraclitus was the prophet of dynamism. The world is constantly in flux, flux. Nothing is ever the same. You can't step in the same river twice because the waters keep flowing and flowing. Well, both things have some truth to them. So as we study the world, we try to put that together and understand. And in our theology too, uh, I wrote a book on divine immutability, but some people 
say, well, that sounds like the static, unchanging law, God. <laughs> well, actually, if you understand the kind of unchangingness, the pure actuality, pure existence, it would be the most dynamic uh, of all beings. Huh? And that dynamism then theologically we describe as, as love. Hmm? Or as Dante says, the, the love that moves the sun and all the other stars at the end of his divine comedy. So a very uh, dynamic, unchanging actuality of God. So yeah, interpretation is important when you look back at these old sources and try to apply them to the contemporary world. Yeah, I, I re recall that Benedict Ashley argued in his interpretation, for example, of Aquinas on uh, Aristotle's De Cello. Uh, Benedict Ashley would argue that this was just a dialectical thesis about the eternity of the world. Mm. And Aristotle recognized it as such. In other words, Aristotle believed in the eternity of the world on the basis of the best science of his day. And so if we gave him the best science of our day, he would change his opinion. He wasn't attached to it the way he was with his analysis of causality, for example, which mm -hmm. was demonstrative and metaphysical rather than dialectical. I've got no, a question from Chase. Got a question from Chase, and I'm glad the students are asking bold and tough questions inspired by my uh, lead. Chase asks, I appreciated the discussion of how God can act without reducing human freedom. Are there examples of Aristotelian physics or metaphysics predicting or assisting scientific discovery in advance? or at present, or is it only retroactively applicable to reframe already functioning theories? That's a very good question. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's right. There was a DuPont commercial, Better Living Through Chemistry, so uh, Better Living Through Applied Metaphysics. Uh, but uh, metaphysics is a kind of a contemplative discipline, so it, it, it can be corrective, it doesn't, and it can set directions, I suppose, uh, towards the truth, but I don't think it's going to show the way to the next uh, scientific experiment. Uh, uh, certainly, Aristotle's books, like his posterior analytics on how to think in, uh, in the natural world is important for, for science in framing the questions that they want to frame and ask what they want to ask. So in that sense, I think it's still very relevant. And I think even if people aren't studying it, intrinsically it has to do with the way human reason works. You know, you put things into categories, you try to figure them out, patterns of action and so on. So uh, it, it remains uh, relevant there. Uh, I don't think it would set the, um, the pathway for science. Science is a different discipline. It studies the world through uh, observation and uh, and uh, making hypotheses and seeing if they work or not. Uh, whereas uh, philosophy of nature certainly looks at the world to see what's going on, but at, at a kind of from 10,000 feet from a broader vista than what science does. So the two should go together. They don't contradict each other. Uh, and uh, But uh, I don't know that uh, Aristotle's philosophy would contribute directly to the inquiries of science uh, more any more than as a kind of a general guide or a corrective or something like that or against false reasoning. Thank you. Josh asks, this, this may be a rude question, but here goes. If we're after an ascent of the heart versus an ascent of the mind, what's the point of philosophy 
beyond uh, an apologetic defense. Uh That's good. I think Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your whole heart and your whole mind and your whole soul and your whole strength. So it's not like mind and heart are in competition with each other. It's part of the human being. And our search for the truth involves both. There's a kind of the rational intellectual knowledge approach to things, but also as the Pascal, Blaise Pascal says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So there's a kind of intuition of love that's also a mode of, of knowing. So I think that both have to be used, certainly in our, in our love of God and seeking God, uh, heart and mind, but also in our investigations of the natural world, uh, both are important. So I, I don't think we discard one for the sake of the other, but, but both are necessary. Thank you. And I see that Marcus has a question on emergence. He even typed it in the chat box, but Marcus, I'll let you ask it directly on camera. You can read it out or be spontaneous, whatever you uh, prefer. Okay, thank you, Dr. Mo. And Father, this is uh, my question. So on the topic of emergence, um, I'm doing my, as I mentioned to you before, I'm doing my MA thesis research on this. And uh, what I seem to find through my research is that there's a profound conflicting of opinions among scientists, which is itself kind of intriguing because there's a, there's a disagreement happening. Some thinkers seem to think that emergence is real and it's a given. And uh, Dr. Arnold Sikama from uh, CSEA, he's also a, a passionate scientist. He's also a scientist passionate about emergence. But uh, also some thinker would say uh, emergence is just something we cannot explain at present, but maybe in the future when we find more fundamental parts in nature, we can explain emergence away. So for those of us who are interested in emergence, what would you think is the best way to think of this issue? Should we look for specific examples in science to prove emergence, or should we think about it in some other way? Thank you. Yeah, well, I think it is an idea that emerged from science. I don't think it was forced on science. If anything, science would be kind of resistant to it, given the reductionistic mentality that was present in science. Uh, I'd say, yeah, allow it to just bubble up and find more instances of it and so on. And some will get on the bandwagon and move ahead with it. And others will be more skeptical, of course. I'm some... uh, talk about emergence, which in, in what emerges then can uh, exert a kind of top-down causality on its components. Others see emergence more as a kind of supervenience, maybe an epiphenomenon. So it's very intriguing, you know, to look at that, but it's just kind of sits there and doesn't have much influence on anything. It doesn't have any traction for getting at the nature of the world, to get at the real nature of things. The fallback is to go back to a kind of reductionism and go from the bottom up. So, you know, Thomas Kuhn wrote his book on the structure of scientific revolutions. And uh, says at certain periods in science, you, you just have a struggle between paradigms. There's a new paradigm and the old guard doesn't accept the new paradigm uh, until it becomes somehow more attractive. And sometimes he thinks it's because of the new kinds of questions that you can raise with it and so on. And it covers a broader area. It explains some things that the old paradigm doesn't exchange, explain. But until one or the other gets into kind of the worldview of scientists generally, there's a kind of a struggle back and forth. So it is science is often had been described as simply a linear progress go right up the chain, we make new discoveries, 
But he wrote in this dialectical thing, no, there's this, there's this conflict that uh, when the new theory comes up and is not accepted at first, but then it proves to be um, helpful and people are intrigued with it. And then sometimes he says that nobody really wins the, uh, the battle. It's just that the old guard dies out and the younger scientists pursue the new paradigm. Thank you. Marcus, did you have a follow-up question? Oh, no, I think that that, that really helps me uh, in terms of how I think of this question. Thank you very much, Father. That's really helpful. Thank well, you. I'll ask a follow-up question, which, which yeah. I think the, the response in, inspires. Uh, if we're going to talk about emergence, don't we have to use the language of potency and act? So if something emerges, it's a potency that's been actualized right. by the causal activity of something acting upon that potency to bring forth actuality. So this increase in actuality can then operate by activating other potentials elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's the top down. The, the top down principle in effect is the priority of act over potency. There's an asymmetrical relationship between the two. And that's ultimately where any notion of causality, whatever the variation on it is, that's mm -hmm. where any notion of causality comes from it. So an efficient cause is just an injection of actuality. Uh, the material cause is just the potency that's going to be activated by that injection. The formal cause then becomes, you know, that highest order of actuality in this natural unit, this composite unit of, of potency and act. And then because there's a dynamism to act, it's not this uh, static universe. There's a dynamism to act. It keeps, you know, maximizing, uh, drawing out as, as much as it can, as much as it can activate from that potency. So that, that's how we can understand the four causes in terms of potency and act. And whatever emergence is going to add in a more nuanced scientific understanding, doesn't it have to think in those terms? Uh, yes, I, I think so. I mean, yeah, potency and act are such broad notions that I think there's application all over the place. So like a, the initial singularity had what the, the potency for all of the universe that we see now is there. In, in potential, you know. Uh, so in emergence too, and I think you're bringing out the priority of act over potency is important there too, that uh, the act to actuality is the important explanatory principle. So if you see a whole behaving in a different way than the parts, then the actuality of the whole should have a priority when we try to explain what's going on over the parts themselves that make up the whole. So that would uh, go back to one question we had a moment ago about how what's the application of this for directing the contemporary science. That, that would be one idea if you're going to choose which way to look in the emergence question. Uh, if your guide was, well, actuality is prior to potentiality uh, ontologically, then look to what's a greater manifestation of actuality and begin your investigation there. Yeah, I did have Chase's question in mind by asking my follow-up question, because I think it's a good question. I do think it's important to emphasize the analogical nature of actuality, which means these principles of potency and act aren't one-size-fits-all answers to diverse scientific questions. Right. And, and uh, there isn't some kind of, you know, uniform prediction we can make on the basis of an understanding of actuality. We can't do that because then that would make actuality something univocal. We could write a variable for it in a mathematical equation. And so if, if I could rephrase Chase's question, he seems to be asking, well, isn't this uh, 
a design flaw in the universe? Is this a bug rather than a feature that we have this actuality, this thing called reality that we can't capture univocally in a scientific equation? I mean, why is this... Uh, uh, a feature rather than a bug, that actuality has this analogical nature, if you will, that it occurs in many different ways and has to be captured by many different approaches in science. Well, what would your apology uh, for actuality be such that uh, you could answer a skeptic who's saying, well, you know, if it can't predict stuff in science on, on a univocal basis, what good is it? Well, yeah, no, I think the thing is, uh... When you study the world, you want to study it as it is. And uh, the world itself, being itself, is not a univocal notion, Aristotle pointed out. So univocity is kind of, I don't know, kind of this mechanistic mindset that this has to mean this in this context is going to mean the same thing here. Almost like the uh, mathematics or something like that, where you can define a point and define a line. And wherever you use them in your geometry, they're going to be univocal meaning. And that's very neat, you know, uh, it's nice that it makes the world neat, but the world isn't that neat, you know, the world's uh, messy. So Parmenides, I think, also wanted to just impose univocity on being, and being was simply, it is. Consequence was then that there is no change, there is no motion, there, uh, and so on. All it's just kind of the logic of univocity comes out there. So Aristotle says, well, look, look around, that things that don't do the same thing all the time there are. So start with the way things are, and things aren't uh, univocal. The world isn't univocal. Uni univocal thinking is handy at certain points, but only if it fits the thing that you want to think about. But if the thing you want to think about isn't a univocal reality, then univocal thinking will, will lead you astray. And for the theologian especially, I think, um, we get into the same mentality of thinking, well, God is a person. Well, humans are persons. So humans are temporal and historicity is part of human nature and so on. So God must have history and history and time must be part of God's reality too. If God is a person, you know, if you take that notion, apply it univocally to the divine. Well, it's a temptation, I think, in our thinking because we like clear and distinct ideas. So we tend to want to move that way, but the reality doesn't fit that univocal thinking all the time. So it's good to have a corrective and have a way of thinking analogously, which takes a lot more effort, I think, <laughs> to try to compare this to that and sort things out and so on. But ultimately, I think we get closer to the heart of reality. And part of analogy, I suppose, is also recognizing our limits. We can't grasp the essence of the thing directly and say, this is what it is. So we end up modeling, saying it's like this. And in a way, that's what empirical science does. It invents models to say, well, maybe the universe behaves this way. Galileo had his model. You know, Einstein has his model. There isn't any definitive final. That's the way things are. But this is the way we can approach it. This is the way we can get closer to the reality or the truth. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a very good answer. It's a way of staying true to reality. Um, yeah, people may think of it as messy, the, the, the word that you used. You know, it's more complicated than we realize. I would say it's more beautiful 
And so I would defend the, the accusation that this is a, a design flaw or some kind of bug. I would say, no, it's what makes the universe beautiful. It's the feature that points to its transcendent source in God. The transcendent nature of actuality looks beyond whatever we can capture with univocal mathematical equations or make predictions about with modern science. Okay, that captures some of reality, but then we can also know more about reality and know more about what it points to. Mm-hmm. That's very good, yes. Uh, Marcus, did you have a follow-up question on emergence? It seems yeah, to have inspired oh, I, this little back and forth. Yeah, I, I have a I have a reflection on this. Uh, so I think uh, it's also in relation to Chase's question. Chase has always been a great conversation partner, a good friend of mine. It's good to see you here too, Chase. Uh, so my thinking is that one way that Aristotle and Aquinas' philosophy of causation has really helped me to understand science is that they provide the necessary philosophical foundation okay, for the uh, for the condition of the possibility of scientific knowledge insofar as uh, if science means knowledge of proper causes then aristotle's philosophy between potency and act shows us that when we find the, the, the true actuality that actualizes a certain potency well that's the principle of causality whatever is in potential must be actualized by something already actual and when we find that we find a true explanation for the world. We find a proper cause or use uh, Galileo's Latin uh, causa vera, the true cause of the world. So for me, I think this uh, potency and act and Aristotle's principle of causality, it, it shows us what science is, even in the midst of very messy paradigm changes and so on. So that's kind of how I think of it. Thank you. I've got a tough question from Brett. I, I keep them coming. We have 10 yeah. minutes left. So uh, please ask your question if it's on your mind. Brett asks in the chat, I found the non-competitive model of divine and human agency interesting. Would would these categories of causality be necessary to make sense of uh, Chalcedonian Christology? Say, would a concept of final causality be necessary for Christ's human and divine wills to both be perfectly free and for them to never oppose one another? Are there other ways that immediately come to mind or how may they help with difficult issues in Christology? And apologies if I've unwittingly stumbled into some heresy, says Brett. (laughs) Yes, no, I think that's fathers of the church reached to Greek uh, philosophy to try to um, untangle some of their theological dilemmas, even basic questions. How can God be one and three and so on? And the two natures of Christ. uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, and the, um, certainly the primary causality of God would be central in all of that on all levels, you know, of course, in our, in the work of salvation, uh, but also in, in the natural orders, causality in, in the world. So, um, you know, the initiative of love is always a divine initiative. Love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. So to have that priority of the divine as kind of a, a, a watchword or as a, a, a guiding light uh, would help in lots of different areas, I think. Uh, and uh, Christology also, I mean, the, <laughs> I, I teach the Trinitarian theology. I don't teach a class on that. I haven't taught uh, Christology, but uh, both present the certain dilemma, especially with Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. And so on. Jesus does truly have a human and divine will, so not, uh, and fully human, so not just a, a puppet, or a, um, but uh, a, the most uh, 
wholly human of all human beings, you know, the perfect human nature and perfect divine nature, but not in conflict with uh, each other because he does what the good human being should do and surrender himself entirely to, to his father. That is, in his human nature, he does that, of course. He is second person of the divinity, and in that he's also ordered to the father within the life of the Trinity, but that would get us far afield here. <laughs> Thank you. Marcus, did you have anything else you would like to ask? Oh, if I, uh, if I may ask uh, one more question, Father. Thank you very much for, for indulging my intellect. It's motivated by its final cause, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I was thinking about uh, uh, the, the notion of uh, downward causation and emergence. So uh, I have been thinking about this. Father, what would you say is the, uh, real, the, precise, uh, the precise relationship in a substance where there is a emergent substantial form? So we have the parts and we have the whole. So when the parts um, you know, meet each other to emerge the whole, is this just a one-way causal relation? So the whole is exercising power on the parts or is this a, a double dependency? So the whole is exercising power on the parts and at the same time, the parts is also in some ways, sustaining or supporting the whole? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It points out a difficulty with emergence. Saying, to me, emergence is, uh, is a beautiful notion that's uh, come up in science, and I think it points the way to something beyond itself, that is. Uh, and the, the question you raise it brings out that difficulty, you know, the but parts give rise to the whole, which then acts as the whole and influences the parts. But you're then always beginning with the part, you know, and it's giving rise to the whole and so on. Whereas um, for Aristotle, you'd begin with the whole and you begin with the form of the whole. If you begin with the part and you introduce bottom-up causality and then reverse top-down causality, I think as Yangon Kim has a lot of articles on that, but does that really work, you know? Yeah, like, is it, is it pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps because you mm -hmm. you erect this thing that then influences its parts and you've got this kind of circular thing going on. So um, I think it's a limitation of the notion of emergence that's kind of straining towards uh, a further explanation that's necessary, an ontological yeah. explanation of the whole, not just an explanation of the whole in terms of how it physically arose from the kind of the constraints of the parts and so on, as some people with talking about emergence uh, mentioned. Uh, that more mechanistic explanation, I think, falls short. It, it collapses back into reductionism again. Mm -hmm. So um, you begin with uh, the whole, and then you don't, in a sense, you don't have to worry about explaining the parts because then the parts are parts of the whole, you know? <laughs> so it's acting as one unified reality. Especially if we're talking about the emergence of a, of a, of a, of a substance of an integrated being, but there too, emergence uh, is invoked on so many different levels. I mean, even the eddy of the water in a creek or something is an emergent reality. Well, that certainly isn't a substantial, reality it's something accidental in the motion of the water but it does come to be and has a certain stability um uh, but i don't think uh, we could introduce the notion of a substantial form there as making that happen 
it would be kind of the confluence of different accidental uh, influences that account for for that sort of an immersion. So the the concept of uh, concept of emergence itself isn't univocal. <laughs> it has lots of different variations the way people use it. Yeah, thank you, Father. Yeah, I found that topic fascinating. And uh, I also learned a great deal from your student, Havacek's books. And he talks about if we begin with the parts and the causal interaction, we seem to be still conceiving of emergence um, in the mode of efficient causation that, that threatens to collapse back into, into uh, mechanism. Yeah, so I think that's, that's very much relevant to the notion of emergence. Uh -huh. Yeah. I've got a question uh, from Josh, but it's a little bit ambiguous. He acknowledges, acknowledges as much. He might want to turn on his mic and rephrase it. But here's what he said in the chat box. God in action is the spirit's extension in works. But has he watered down his explanation for secular purposes? I don't disagree with his argument, but I find it odd that he's only addressed a neuter God, if that makes sense. I think the he pronoun refers not to God, but to you, Father Dodds. Yeah, so I I don't want to come off as like a a jerk or whatever, but my I just wanted to like clarify because um a lot of your um your explanations for all this stuff is like God acts and God exists and stuff like that and like it's talking about divine action, um but from my from my experience I've seen a lot of these sort of like agents of cause from like the Holy Spirit's like extension through us, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, um, I guess my whole thing is, like, have you uh, changed the wording for, like, a secular purpose or something? Uh, well, I think, uh, in, in a way, I was, I was addressing a more secular, well, it would be a theological also concern. But the um, those who would say that uh, divine action is a contradiction to the natural order, God interferes with the natural order if God acts in it. So addressing people who have that question, I tended towards uh, trying to explain how God could act in nature without interfering with nature or distorting nature and so on. So I think it was in view of the audience I had in mind why I veered in, in that direction. Uh, if it was uh, for another group, if I was explaining it, say, to a, to a Catholic Bible study group or something like that, uh, uh, then uh, certainly God's action is still there. And are uh, we as instruments uh, uh, of God's action, I mean, in a way, that's what Jesus calls us to be as his disciples, we're to share his love, but his love originates with him, not with us. So when we're sharing his love in that act of discipleship, we are instruments of Christ, but in being an instrument, we're also kind of a secondary cause or an instrumental cause. When you introduce the term, it seems to make everything go kind of flat and philosophical and not as uh, inspirational, has other ways of talking about how the Holy Spirit can act in our lives and inspire us to certain actions and so on. But the two aren't contradictory, I don't think. I think this, there's a place for a philosophical language and certainly a place for a theological language, which can also be kind of precise, but then for kind of the inspirational language, the pastoral language you might use in a sermon or something, uh, would be another language in all of them would be pointing, if we're pointing to divine action, would be pointing to reality that utterly transcends anything we can say. 
So the more approaches we have or ways we can point out that reality, the better off we are. So lots of different kinds of language we can use to uh, to talk about that or talk about how God is um, active in our human lives and so on. Yeah. Well, Josh, thanks you for, for your response. We thank you for being with us this evening. We've reached our end point of 8.30. Do we have time for one more question? Colton asks in the chat, on the topic of miracles, I either think your explanation is lacking or I don't understand your argument properly. You said that miracles do not go against the nature of the universe because the primary source is God. Therefore, it's a logical part of the universe. Miracles would not go against the laws of nature, but are caused by God enacting them. If that were true, wouldn't that just mean that miracles can just be defined as an act of the universe working rather than a divine source? If all miracles are just caused by things in the universe and we just don't understand how they work, wouldn't that just mean that miracles are the product of ignorance? God is not necessary for miracles if they can have any chance of the universe acting on its own, like a wind-up clock would tick without the clockmaker's influence at all times. I believe that miracles can only be defined as God ripping apart the universe's pre-made order for them to truly exist. What do you think about these ideas? <laughs> yeah, well, I hate to be um, pushed into the position of being kind of a liberal theologian and just saying, well, you know, things happen in the universe. And if we're inspired by God, inspired when we see them happen, then we can call them miracles. No, I think there are, as Bob Russell says, objective divine action. There are uh, events in which God is actually at work in the universe, and especially with miracles, in a way that goes beyond uh, the natural workings of of the universe. So I wouldn't at all say that, I mean, I did a lot of, spent a lot of the lecture on primary secondary causality and didn't mention miracles till the very end. But one thing I'd want to say is that the God establishes the order of of the universe, but the order of the universe doesn't, isn't the final word the universe is ultimately ordered towards God. So whatever God does in the universe isn't against the most fundamental order of the universe, which is its ordering towards God. It can be, and that's why they seem wondrous, because they're beyond the capacity of the natural causes that we see. But water doesn't change itself into wine, you know, so they are full of wonder in that they are beyond the natural capacity of things. But I like the word beyond uh, because it points us toward the transcendence rather than against, as if God's coming in and just smashing what's there and so on. The, they are to lead us ultimately to God so that we are filled with wonder and our hearts respond in ways that open us to divine love, divine presence, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if uh, we were there when... Uh, Red Sea parted, we would not probably think that well, this was just a natural wind blowing and that's nice. Well, we'd probably be full of wonder, how can that be happening? But it, I'd say it wouldn't be happening against the most fundamental tendency of the natural world, which is its tendency to God, to be an instrument, as we should be, of the divine. But I can understand you wanting to use that I forget what you were, words you said, like the slash and burn effect with a miracle. Yeah, uh, wonder. Uh huh. Yeah, and I think that's that's fine, just so long as we don't think that somehow the the world is at odds with God, rather than being the um, the creation of God in which God can act. Mm-hmm.